Hello everyone and welcome to episode 321 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre where you'll find an awesome, supportive writing community. And I'm here with the very talented Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher series. How are you, Al? I am busy, Val. <laughs> okay. I'm busy, which is is that better than fair to middling? I don't know yeah, because yeah. that's just our default response, isn't it? Like yes. when you say to anyone, "What? Do you, how are you? Yeah, I'm busy, mate. Mate, I'm busy. Busy. What are you busy doing, mate? Mate, what am I doing? That's a good question. Do you know what I'm doing? Like I'm mm. supposed to be. Yeah. There's the things I'm supposed to be doing, which I'm busy with. So those things include. I don't know what is what are those things. Oh, like just a whole bunch of admin stuff, and you know some uh, promotional stuff and some blah 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 stuff, all that stuff, right? <laughs> stuff that needs to be done because yes. you know this is a business. Al Tate is a business, and Al Tate is supposed to get stuff done. But <laughs> Al Tate is also a writer, and Al Tate has been procrastinating writing. So instead of doing the actual things I'm meant to be doing right now, yes, uh, I've decided to just write something else. What? What do you mean? I'm just writing a book. You mean a new thing? Well, I've started a new thing, yes, but I'm also editing a a different thing that I, you know, liked that I thought might be good and so now I'm actually making it good as opposed to the first draft which had some potential to be good but – so that's been awkward, you know, because I've discovered I had to come up with names for people that I hadn't had names for and I had oh. to kind of rename people where the names weren't quite right and like you're mm. just sort of moving things around. And, you know, I wrote this scene and it's look, it's a great scene and I remembered writing the scene the first time and I wrote the scene and I wrote the scene and it just had the one character in it, that the, the main character in it. Mm. And then even as I was writing the first draft, I did something which I never do, which was I – went back and rewrote the scene and put another character into it because I realised um, that I needed some information in that scene that, you know, this character couldn't know. Mm. So how is she going to find this stuff out, right? So I put yes. another character into the scene and I and then I, then what I did was I, re, I wrote the rest of the book as though that character had been in the scene the whole time. And right. then – and then I realised while I was editing the book that that character that I wrote into that scene couldn't be there. there she, oh. she couldn't be there because how would she have got there? Because yeah. there was no reason for her to be there. She didn't have the motivation to be there and she couldn't actually physically know how to get to this particular thing. So mm-hmm. that wasn't going to work. So then I had to rewrite that scene again, putting a different character into it who had good reason to be there. So right. I rewrote the scene again. Then I had to rewrite the whole rest of the book because, oh my God. well, you know, edit that character yeah. out and edit this character yeah, in yeah. and do whatever. Anyway, so then I'm writing, 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 and I realised as I was writing, writing, writing and editing and going forward and doing all sorts of amazing things that actually – I didn't need the other character in there at all. I just needed to go back and rewrite that scene. <laughs> just the one character in the scene. And then I had to go through and rework all of the rest of the book to get rid of that second character out of the scene and all the discussions about it and how that information. So long story short, I made a mess of it and had to go back and fix it. So that's what I've been doing with that one. And then I started wow. nothing. Oh, my goodness. I know, but it's just like as I do this and it's so fun and I'm having such a lovely time just like, you know, throwing words out and putting them in Mm. and shifting them around my sand pit as you do, um, 
but all the time that I'm doing that, I've got this thing hanging over my head that I'm meant to be doing and haven't done. <laughs> Just, so wow. that's where I'm at. Are you really glad you asked? I'm oh, sure my goodness, mate. but you are so prolific. You are one of the most prolific writers I know. It's astounding what you can well, get done. Just, and it's I no wonder. It's productive. I just, you know. Yeah, I, and you also use every minute. Well, I do. And all, well, clearly I'm using minutes I'm not supposed to be using at the moment. <laughs> but also I just um, – I just love it. It's it's where mm. I would rather be, particularly mm. at the moment. There is nothing better. Like when you're sitting in a world where people are just, let's not mention toilet paper, but let's mention <laughs> toilet paper, where people are out there buying, you know, trolley loads full of toilet paper for yeah. whatever reason. Um, it's good to be in a world where you can obliterate a character just with your delete mm. button. If that's what you want to do, you can change their names. You can rewrite bits that, you know, I there's a lot to be said for the control of writing of a world of a whole world and you know it's something that I always talk about when I go to talk to kids about writing because mm. it is for me it's just one of the best things about the whole thing you're in a world where you can just change someone's name if you feel like it you know yes, like yes. I don't like your name so I'm going to mm-hmm. change your name you know it's mm. not working for me so you do that and I you know and and I think kids really get that when I say that to them. I'm like, you have no control outside of what yeah. happens on this page because this is the only place where you can smack that bully in the head if you want to mm. and not be suspended for like bro- breaching the hands-off policy. So you <laughs> kind of got to work with what you've got and kids get that. They love it. And, and, and I don't think it's really occurred to them before I say that to them. I'm like, this is yeah. control, people. This is you building a world from scratch and making it whatever you want it to be. So I'm, so you know, escaping the real world by <laughs> deleting people from my from my fictional world. I think anyway. a lot of writers escape the real world that way, but I have no doubt that a lot of writers are so suddenly going to come up with various things around the theme of coronavirus. <laughs> you know, in the next lot of manuscripts we're going to see It'll be the my, virus will be about a virus. World. Yes, no exactly. Doubt. No anyway, doubt. we want oh, to give no, a big let's talk about you. No, what, no, what, what, before what, what, we go. Before oh. we go on, I mean we've just rabbited on about me for too long, <laughs> but let's talk about you. You had your opening this week. Oh yes, I had an um an opening of my first ever solo art exhibition at Darling Square in Sydney, and um it was lovely. It was great. It was so good to see people from the writing community, the art community, the business community, and um yes, it's like the ultimate place where worlds collided, and it actually went well. <laughs> well, it went really well because it, you sometimes, sold stuff, didn't you? Yes, like, yes. Like, like Valerie's of... very modest about her achievements, <laughs> so it's up to her friends to talk about how amazing she is. So I'm going to talk about how amazing she is. Um, you sold stuff. You've done brilliantly. You managed to get this thing together, which I think given your work schedule is is incredible in itself. So, you know, speaking of product productivity, that would be, yeah, right there. Right there. Yeah, but Artistic don't take a leaf, and productive. Don't take a leaf out of my book because on my, a few days ago I got – I was still up, as in still working from the night before, as my partner woke up. And as all of my neighbours left for work. Oh, Valerie. It's like being at uni, isn't it? Like you're pulling all-nighters like you're 20 and you're not 20 anymore, I'm not 20. Oh, my God. Anyway, congratulations and very well done. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We want to give a big shout-out to Dua01 who left us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and Dua01 who is actually Dolores. 
Hi, um, Dolores. Said, hi, Dolores. I love listening to your entertaining musings and all things associated with the craft or is it the art of writing. Val's passionate and at times dogmatic views <laughs> are well-tempered by Alison's pragmatic measured See, tones. Pragmatic and measured. I like that. That makes it, That's much better than fair to middling. I'm going to be pragmatic and measured yeah, from I like now that. on. Yeah. Keep up the great work, ladies. I have five years of banter and interviews to get to listen to before I get to 2020. How easy it is to turn back the clock. Cheers, Dolores. Oh, wow. Thanks, Dolores. Oh, you are going to be so sick of the sound of us, but okay. Thanks, Dolores. We appreciate it. Yes, really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And if any other listeners have um, 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast app is, we'd really be grateful because it helps us in the rankings. So let's now move on to the world of writing and publishing. We've got some big news from one of our presenters, Natasha we Lester, don't we? We have got some big news. The lovely Natasha Lester, who is a friend and an AWC presenter and a mm. best-selling international, you know, superstar of, of fiction, yes. has um, got, well, there was a big announcement and she has won the Goldsboro Books Historical Novel Award for 2020, awarded mm. at the Romantic Novelists Association in the UK. And she was on a shortlist with writers like Joe jo Moyes. So let's mm. just take a moment, a moment and a huge, like, let's just go, Natasha, international mm. scale, round of applause. You're amazing. Congratulations from all of your friends and everyone at AWC. We're very, very excited for you. Very excited. She's been so successful. And if you want to learn a little bit about how you can be that successful, Natasha has a course at the Australian Writers' Centre called How to Pitch Your Novel to Agents and Publishers, where she literally goes step by step into what she did to pitch her novel to agents and publishers to the point where it resulted in a bidding war for some of her novels. So she takes you through right down into the, what you need to find out, how to write your emails, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and so just go to writercenter.com.au slash pitch. That's writercenter.com.au slash pitch to find out more about that fabulous course. Now, Al, you have a great link for us about author panels. I do have a link about author panels and the reason I thought it was quite an interesting one is because, of course, many of um, the AWC students and people that we know and people in our Facebook community and people in the whole world of social media have recently been getting book deals and having their Yay. first book launch and it's all very, very exciting. exciting. And one of the things that comes with that sort of excitement is author panels. <laughs> and by that, I mean, you know, you get invited to go to festivals and you get invited to participate in author panels where you get to sit up on a stage with other authors and discuss various things. Now, I can honestly tell you that if you've never done this before and you have no idea how it works, and I can I, I say this from experience, it can be an incredibly intimidating thing, particularly depending on who you're on that panel with. Like it can yeah. all just be a little bit overwhelming. So this particular post is called Best Practices for Participating in Author Panels. Um, and it's on the Penguin Random House website, uh, the US one, I believe. Um, and it just breaks down, you know, some of the things that of things you can do to prepare for sitting up on that panel so that you're not a rabbit caught in the headlights mm. uh, when it actually happens. Because it is, trust me, it can feel very overwhelming and very, but it's actually incredibly fun. Like once you get there, particularly if you are prepared, it is a very, very fun thing and it's a great way to meet people and a great way to talk about your books. So, 
they go through the steps. And the first one, of course, is to prepare your elevator pitch. Now, this is important for any author, whether you're going to go on a panel, whether you're going to be interviewed on radio, whether you're going to, like, it doesn't matter what it is that is going to happen to you in the promotion of your book or even the Mm. selling of your book, let's face Mm. it, like the, you know, the pitching your book for publication. You have to be ready to talk about your book. And you need to be ready to talk about your book in a very succinct way fashion. Now, I am currently trying to work through my own elevator pitch for my book that's coming out on the 1st of September. And it at currently, it is at half a page, too long. So, mm-hmm. I am working working through whittling this thing down, this incredibly complicated story that mm-hmm. is 65,000 words to the basics, to something yep. that is, but not only something that is going to sum the book up, but something that will sell the book. So yes. you've got to make it sound enticing. You've got to be able to say what the book's about in a very short way. And now this is not, okay, the book's about, you know, um, the the dynamics of mothers groups and what happens when you get there. Mm. Um, It's got to be more than that. It's got to be what your book is about. So not just the theme of the book, not just the overall idea of the book, what your book is about. Um, So it's definitely something that needs to be done and maybe maybe have a look at at, um, Natasha's course for that even. You know, even if you've sold your book, work out how to pitch your book because it's actually Mm. two very different skills and you need to be able to do it. This is your answer like this and it's really worth doing this because this is what you're going to say when the radio host says, so tell us what your book's about. And you're not going to be going, oh, well, you know, Mm, there's like this girl character and there's like this boy character and then there's like this happens and then that happens, which is pretty much where I'm at at the moment. You want to get well beyond that. You want to get it down to a couple of sentences. So be ready for that. The other thing, and I think this is very, very, very important, is to be ready for the what I like to call the boring questions because they are boring questions, but they are the mm-hmm. kinds of questions that are going to come up. They call them, they're much more polite in this article and they call them the obligatory questions. So usually there's going to be a moderator on your panel um, and they're going to ask you questions. And those questions are often going to be initially at least even, unless you've got someone who's really kind of read all the books and, and really understands how a panel works. Mm-hmm. Um you're going to end up with these kinds of questions. What inspired your book? What kind of research did you do? Can you tell us about your writing process? What do you hope readers will take away from your book? What's next for you? Like these are the kinds of things that are going to come up over and over. And they, they come up in every interview or some variation on them does. Um, you know, you just want to hope that the whole interview is not that. You want a little bit more than that, hopefully. But generally speaking, you need to be ready for these questions. You also would, I would suggest, be ready for a question about who's your favourite, particularly if you're a children's author, be ready for who's your favourite author. I hate that question. And also be ready for what was your favourite book as a child? Be ready for it. It's going to come your way at some point, yeah? So those are the kinds of questions. So have a look. Um, And maybe if you go to panels, like if you're in the lead up to your book coming out, I really suggest going to a couple of festivals, having to to watch some of the panels, how they work and the kinds of questions that come up. And you will notice the similar questions coming up over and over. Be ready for them. It's really important that you've got an answer for those kinds of questions. And also, if you happen to be asked to chair a panel, like to mm. be the moderator on a on a panel, my biggest tip on that is to obviously research your panelists and make sure that you're really prepared. And again, as Alison said, 
go to events and see how people channel uh, chair panels. Um, I was once on a panel. I was the panelist, and um, it was in Queensland. So I was the organisers flew me up to Brisbane or Gold Coast or wherever it was um, to speak on this panel. And there were two other panelists, so there were three panelists and a moderator. And the, we we had um, it was a, like a twenty minute slot, um, so that was not super long, but it's long enough. And the chair, so the moderator, spoke for. 16 of those minutes. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> like in her intro. And we literally had time for one short answer each to one question and that then we had to obviously keep to time and we were whisked away. So the organisers spent all that money flying myself and another panellist up because the third one was from Queensland and um, – what you know, it was just kind of ridiculous waste of money, really. Wow, <laughs> but I, I think that actually brings up an important point that they do make in this um, particular uh, blog post, which is that you need to take and share the spotlight. So you yeah. are there to speak. So you do actually have to speak at some point. Like it's important that you open your mouth at some point and say something, but it's also very, very important that you don't take over the whole mm. panel and that is um you know it's the moderator's job to kind of help to uh or the, you know the chairperson's job to help to you know spread that um around uh so when i'm moderating a panel i'm always careful to if i'm going to ask a question i will direct it to somebody and i will try my best mm. to ensure that everybody on the stage gets yes. a question you know and and if someone's you know given an incredibly lengthy answer to someone else's question prior to that i will ensure that the next question directly goes to someone else. Yeah, because, So you want to make sure that you speak, but you also want to make sure that you don't be that moderator that took up 16 minutes of a 20-minute <laughs> panel because it's just, you know, you're, you're there, you're, you're a team. I mean, mm. you and your other panellists are a team and you are there to share, um, to give the audience an experience. So you have to remember that there's a certain element of performance about what you're doing. And, and to that end, it is a good idea to have some idea of who it is that you're there with. Um, yep. So, have a do a bit of research beforehand. Get an idea of the kind of books of the people um, that you're on the panel with, uh, and get some idea of who they are, so that you you know that you can have some conversation as opposed to each of you just give an answer to a question because um, yep. that's quite a different experience for the audience. Anyway, it's a really good post, and it's a lot. It, it's worth thinking about mm. um, knowing you know getting some of this stuff. And as I said, one of the best ways to actually get an idea of what goes on in the panel is to go and watch some panels because Definitely. watching a panel will help you to understand what you do want to do and what you don't want to do. Yeah. So we have another link from Jane Friedman's uh, website, Doey Al, about unpublished we writers and, webs and websites. Should you have one and what should it say? Yeah, so this is a post. Um, it's it's she updates this one over a year. It's been around for a couple of years now. We possibly, Valerie, like let's face it, in the many many years that we have been having these conversations, we possibly have referred to this post before. But let's pretend but it's we've been never updated. seen it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been updated. Yeah. So it's um, unpublished writers and websites. Should you have one, and what should it say? Now Jane Friedman is very very good expert in these areas, um, and it's 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 basically about the fact because of course you know. You need, a, you need to kind of get yourself out there online before you're all published, but then, you know, what do you actually put on your website? Um, she she believes that if you're going to plan, um, 
you know, if you're going to pursue writing as a professional long-term career, then you want to start and maintain an author website, even if you're unpublished. And Valerie and I strongly agree with that. I think it's one of those things. You need a placeholder. You need your calling card on the web. You need to establish some territory um, well before your book ever comes out. If you, if you wait until your book comes out, you are behind the eight ball and you will be scrambling and scrambling and scrambling. Um, so she gives a very, very, very clear idea of what you want to put on it. You want an, you want an about page. You need a bio that is going to give people some idea of who you are and why you're there. Um, you know, as a, a, a decent headshot is always a good idea at this point as well. As Valerie and I have talked on many, many occasions, you know, this is not not necessarily the place to lead in with your love of cats. Um, however, if your love of cats is relevant to what you are writing and you don't have any published work, then you know feel free to talk about your cats until you start getting some stuff up there that you can actually talk about. Um, you want a contact page. Make clear um, how you can be reached. I would also suggest on your bio, on your about page, um, give some idea of where you are. You don't need to say, I live at you know, 28 Smith Street, mm. um, but or, or even the suburb, but just say you're in Sydney or say you're in Melbourne or, you know, yeah. because Southwest it's New South the, Wales. Southwest New South Wales. Give people an idea of where you are because when people are looking for, um, you know, talent for panels, yeah. let's talk yeah. about panels. Mm. Well, if they're looking for ta- talent for panels or something, they're looking for, they need to know where you are. They need to have an idea of how much it's going to cost them to get them to you, uh, get you to them rather. Mm. Um, if you have any sort of uh, publishing credits, you want a page that's got got that information on it, whether it's magazines, whether it's blogs mm. and websites, whether it's, um, you know, short stories that you've, uh, that, that you've, uh, short story competitions that you've won or that you've entered or, or finalists. anything, finalists, mm. links to your social media profiles, put your, you know, Twitter, blah, blah, all those sorts of things on there. And she recommends a, an email newsletter sign up and so do I. Even if yep. you don't have a newsletter just yet, get a sign up, get a newsletter going. Um, it is the best way for you to lob yourself directly at people when the time comes. So when your book is going to be published, you can go straight into their inboxes as opposed to, you know, even if you're on Facebook or whatever, you know, you might have a thousand followers, the chances of those 1,000 people actually Mm -hmm. seeing the post that you put up about your book launch mm. um, are so small because of the, you know, we've talked about the algorithms and things. You need to do very, very consistent work on your social media pages to make yeah. sure that people are actually seeing what you're putting up there. Very, very consistent. Um, uh, whereas with your newsletter, it's straight into the inbox. And if they if they sign up for it, they're inviting you. So, they're yeah. interested. So, you know, like you, you, it's actually a very important part of your author toolkit. So those are the kinds of things that uh, Jane suggests go on a website. What do you think, Valerie? You got thoughts oh, on that? Oh, absolutely. And I think the most common question we get is, "But I haven't written anything yet, and you know what? And so, what would I um, write about if I was, you know, how would I claim that I'm an author?" Well, my suggestion is you, that you write that you're an author, but you can say your upcoming novel is so and so. You know, even if you haven't got a book deal yet. That's the novel you're working on, right? And mm-hmm. even if ultimately that novel doesn't get picked up but some other novel does, so what? 
you can see that happens all the time in the publishing industry. You can simply all say, the time. yeah, you can simply say, oh, the the publishers preferred this novel, so now this is my upcoming novel. I, yeah, I yeah. just yeah, I think it's perfectly fine to change direction in that way, and it's perfectly normal as well in the, pub, the publishing industry. So if you're so chances are you are working on a manuscript, so you can say upcoming novel is you know the blah 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 whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it like it's worth also noting that your um website and Jane makes this point as well, it's never finished. Mm. Like it's always a work in progress. I'm still working on mine now. I thought my about page was up to date. I was all over it. Like I was totally, totally here for that. And then I went to have a look at it the other day because I had to send it to somebody and it's a year out of date, a year out of date. (laughs) I know. What have I been doing? So I updated it and then I sent out my not regular enough reminder on Twitter to everyone else I've ever met to have a look at theirs because it very, very quickly goes out of date, particularly those about pages and things. Um, So it's always going to be a work in progress. And you can start with something and you can change it in you know, six months' time if you don't love it. Um, she yeah. has a, co- a little bit of a conversation here about whether you should use WordPress, Squarespace or something else. Um, she still recommends that writers use WordPress uh, to start because um, it's free and, you know, 20 to 25% of the websites a day are still built on it. Squarespace, you know, comes with, you know, there's a lot – it's quite useful for people who have no tech skills yep. because there's a lot of maintenance done there for you. They update all your plugins all the time. But there is a monthly cost with that mm. that may not be justifiable when you're, you know, when you're early in your career and you're sort of just starting out. So, mm. But um, it's not massive. It's not it's something not massive. ridiculous. No, yeah. it's not massive. So, But it's worth having a look. Like have yeah. a look around. Look at some websites that are built on Squarespace. Look at some websites that are built on WordPress and think about, you know, how much time you actually want to put into doing this and then you can decide – um, you know, at that point, what you, what, which, which sort of platform is going to work best for you. Um, but anyway, so, you know, the website's still important. In fact, you know, always important. And it's, it's one of those things that the sooner you get started with it, yes. uh, the better, really. Absolutely. And hmm. even if it's just one page, because you can always build other pages as you go along. But just start off with one page. It doesn't have to be complex. It doesn't have to be, you know, the iconic. Um, All right, let's move on to our giveaway this week. We have three copies of The Mothers by Genevieve Gannon, an award-winning journalist and author of four novels, currently the staff writer of the nation's biggest women's magazine, The Australian Women's Weekly, where she covers everything from cold case murders and cults to celebrities and sports stars. Her novel, The Mothers, is about two couples, one baby, an unimaginable choice. What if the baby you gave birth to belonged to someone else? Grace and Dan Arden have been on the IVF treadmill since the day they got married. Six attempts have yielded no results and they're losing hope. Priya Lagari and her husband, Nick Archer, are being treated at the same fertility clinic and Priya is booked for her IVF cycle the same day Grace goes in for her final last chance embryo transfer. Two weeks later, both women get their results. A year on, angry and heartbroken, one of the women learns her embryo was implanted in the other's uterus and must make a devastating choice. Live a childless life knowing her son is being raised by strangers or seek custody of a baby who has been nurtured and loved by another couple. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yes. Well, yes. So um, we have three copies and you could win one of them. Just go to writercenter.com.au slash win and 
follow the prompts. Entries close on the 16th of March. That's writerscentercomau slash win. All right, Al. Mm. <laughs> Are you oh, ready it's that for time? <laughs> it is that time. <laughs> I was almost taken by surprise. Okay, I've, I've embraced. Go, Val. Go. Okay, you're ready for the word of the week. I'm ready. Eldritch. E l d r i t c h. Eldritch. Do you know what it is? No, but it sounds like it sounds like something out of Lord of the Rings. It does a bit. Mm. It, this means unearthly or from mm. a foreign realm. So you might say as I did, I stopped watching The Outsider, the TV adaptation of the Stephen King novel, because the storyline was full of too many eldritch themes. You did not say that. <laughs> I did just then. did not say that. <laughs> Nobody says that. Eldritch <laughs> is going to turn up in one of my novels as the name of the elven king, but it is not a word that anyone is using. I'm sorry. Please it, uh, prove me wrong. If you find it in a novel or something like that, share in the Facebook group because I'd love to see it. But really? <laughs> well, I did stop watching The Outsider because of that reason, Be- even though the beautifully delicious Jason Bateman is in it. I refused to continue watching it because it just was too much, Mm. too much. All right, let's move on to our writer in residence this week. This week we're talking to Julian Leatherdale, whose latest book is Death in the Ladies' Goddess Club, set in 1930s King's Cross. Now, Julian has had a very varied career, but more recently this is his third novel. He's previously published Palace of Tears and The Opal Dragonfly. And this particular book, I'm seeing it front and centre in all the bookshops that I go past, so let's have a chat to Julian Leatherdale. Thanks so much for joining us today, Julian. My pleasure. Now, congratulations on your latest book. Oh, it's just um, – and, and it's got such a, a striking cover as well. I love it. I've um, never seeing heard it. Yes, Death in the Ladies' Goddess Club. Now, <laughs> for those people who haven't – grabbed a copy yet. Can you tell us what it's about? Sure. Well, it's set in King's Cross in March 1932. The main character shares a rather um, claustrophobic little flat, but she loves it, uh, with what she calls her view, her favourite rectangle of sky looking back over the cross. She's an aspiring crime writer at a time when women were not encouraged to write crime. She actually has a boyfriend who tells her that crime's uh, too serious a business for women to get involved in. So she's at home uh, writing this novel. Her flatmate, Bernice, is one of the wild ladies of the cross. She's a bohemian. Uh, She's out having a, a good time at a party. And suddenly we hear a scream late in the night and Joan runs downstairs and a very good friend of Bernice's is discovered brutally murdered in the flat below. And suddenly Joan finds herself thrown out of the fictional world of crime into the real world of crime. And she decides for a number of different reasons to undertake the investigation herself in the style of an amateur sleuth. There's people she may even want to protect. The list of suspects keeps growing, involving her very rich aunt and uncle who live in a gorgeous apartment block that were very typical of that time in the cross. 
Uh, she has a communist boyfriend. Uh, there's gangsters involved. By the end of it, everybody's after Joan, uh, even including her uh, heroine who she loves, who is a special sergeant, Lillian Armfield, one of the first police officers in the New South Wales police force. So it's a thriller. It's a crime thriller. Uh, but it's very much about the bohemian life of the cross uh, rather than the razor gang life of the cross. That creeps in. But I was really interested in the writers, the poets, the, the ladies who knew how to have a good time uh, in King's Cross at that time. And why were you interested? How did you get interested in that world, specifically in the cross and specifically that bohemian sector? Yeah, well, that's good. I'm not, not a bohemian at all myself. Mm. Um, I have to be honest, I'm slightly in awe of people who are prepared to cut loose like that. And, um, you know, and, but I have spent time around artists and writers, obviously. Um, and I thought, well, to be honest with you, I had actually planned a giant book that I was going to deliver to Alan and Unwin, which was going to be a saga over a hundred years, all set in the cross. And, um, my second book, uh, was so complex and, and lush that I decided to leave that as the story for an early period uh, there in the cross. So I'd started researching the Bohemians as, as part of this larger project. And I found them fascinating because all artists struggle with, you know, whoever uh, pays the piper calls the tune. And yet all artists want to do their own good work. And so the Bohemians have always said, uh, we want to outrage the bourgeoisie. We don't want to be dependent on them. But, of course, they ultimately are. They have to sell their work, whether it be a book or a painting. So that dilemma uh, has always fascinated me. And I also, I mean, I didn't know, to be honest. I, I love finding out undiscovered Australian history. I didn't know the cross was such a an interesting place in the 20s and 30s. You know, you hear about the jazz age and all that. But one of its most distinctive features was the growth of the flat. And what that meant was that um, single professional women could live relatively cheaply close to the city, just a 15-minute tram ride into town. Mm. So it created whole new opportunities for women to branch out uh, and do their own thing. So some of these people living in the cross were just office girls and what have you, typists. And, but uh, others took advantage of the low rent and uh, found a like-minded community. Some people call it the Montmartre of the <laughs> cross, which I think is lovely. Mm. Um, and, then, you know, you look at the photos at that time, and it was a much – there were brothels, you know, sort of creeping around the edges. The Razor Gang territory had crossed over into King's Cross. But it was a relatively quiet place, uh, actually. Um, you know, it looked like uh, a Parisian boulevards. Uh, that main McClay Street was gorgeous with great big mm. mansions and what have you. But, you know, I, I also wanted to challenge myself writing about um, sex and uh, drugs. And, uh, you know, I think people look at the past and think it's all a bit coy, really. But, you know, they, people of the past had just as good a time as uh, the hippies of the 60s. You know, they were, they were challenging the system in a similar kind of way. So I wanted to wake people up to that. So how did you do this research on a practical level? Did you go to the State Library? Are there specific um, historical societies? What did you actually do to really get an understanding of what life was like 
in King's Cross in the yeah days. yeah well I uh, I was very fortunate that I have um, friends who have flats up there who allowed me to stay mm-hmm. so I did a lot of walking around the cross just to learn the geography and get familiar with the atmosphere um, I just read a heap of books I mean there's some very good scholarship on the Bohemians that is uh, most people outside specialized areas wouldn't even know about so there's a fantastic book um, written by Dulcie Deemer, her name was, who is the self-appointed Queen of Bohemia. She was famous for turning up to an artist's ball in 1923, uh, dressed in um, uh, a dog tooth necklace and a leopard skin tunic and outraging everybody at the party. She wrote a memoir, so I read memoirs. Um, Jack Lindsay, uh, Norman Lindsay's son, some of the writings of Norman Lindsay, lots and lots and lots of photographs. Um, lots of interviews of people who lived in the cross at the time. Um, most of that generation, of course, have passed on, um, so there weren't opportunities to interview them live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could lie to you and say I buried myself in the State Library. I've done that for other books, mm-hmm. but for this book, I just found a very good um, popular sources and uh, academic sources. There's a very good historian who writes well on uh, femininity and female sexuality, which is just an astonishing subject, which, you know, is quite shocking in terms of most people didn't think it really existed until the 20s. Um, So, you know, that was the kind of very broad reading. I would have read literally dozens of books to, uh, you know, to to go more in-depth on not just the details uh, of life in the cross, but also the mindset, you know, what were people thinking at the time? What were they hoping for? What were their motivations? So can you take us back to when you knew you wanted to write novels? That's a very good question. I would say not necessarily novels. I wanted to write mm. from early childhood, and most writers I meet, not all, will say something very similar. So the novel looked like far too big a mountain to climb Uh, in my teenage years, although I did write short stories and radio plays and all sorts of things. Uh, I did to my uh, chagrin try to write a novel in my early 20s, and it was really terrible. Uh, It was highly autobiographical, and it really belonged in a bottom drawer, but it served one good purpose. I showed it to a publisher who then offered me a job, so that did no harm. Yeah, little little boutique publisher. Um, so I put it on the shelf for a while, the idea of the novel. I worked in lots of other media, uh, documentary for television, uh, live theater, cabaret. Uh, and then I got a passion for the idea of being a YA children's writer. I had been working in collaboration with animators, both here in Australia and in London, trying to get up some, uh, you know, short films and TV series. Uh, so that became my next big project. And they were going to be short novels. You know, I thought I'll take it uh, slowly at first. And I just loved writing those. And in fact, one of them is about to be published this year, having uh, sat hidden away in the bottom drawer for a long time. Yeah. Um, so uh, they were, interestingly enough, uh, one of them was set in a historical fiction setting in Edwardian London. And my agent said to me back in the uh, about 2012, I think, why don't you write historical fiction for 
adults. Mm. And I said, I don't know, really. <laughs> she said, you write well. You're obviously, you care a lot about research mm. uh, and getting things right. Uh, give it a go. So I wrote Palace of Tears, the first novel, and Alan and Unwin picked it up very smartly, mm. and it did well. So, yeah, really, I'm a bit of a poster boy for uh, late development in that sense, I suppose, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as a novelist. Uh, yeah. And so with, with historical fiction, and it, you obviously do enjoy research. You've also done essays on the Hydra Majestic and Mark Foy. I think that would be fascinating. Um, yes. What about the research do you enjoy? And if you do enjoy it, which I suspect you do, is there not a chance that you would over-research and get oh. to – too into you know too much into it for what you actually really need so how do you yes. balance that <laughs> yes that's 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 the question and i have met so many writers who tell me mm. you know they've been right researching their novel for 10 years and you mm. just go well that's never going to get written so um mm. i hope you're enjoying the research it's a tough call um you know be, the important thing is that this it's the story that has to be served first and foremost and I guess what the research in the early phase does is open your eyes to possibilities you'd never entertained, mm. um, aspects of history you didn't know about, um, ideas about uh, you know, sexual relations it might be, or mm. how people make money, or just really quirky stuff that you thought you knew. I studied history at university and school, and there are so many buried unknown stories. But there is a danger that you will get trapped in your research, and uh, it does help having a publisher who gives you a deadline. Uh, that certainly helps. Uh, your first novel, of course, is the one where you put in everything but the kitchen sink for the first draft, and that did take – mind you, that only took two and a half years, which is quite fast. Um, I think you have to have a very solid sense of at least a first draft story. You just can't wander into the territory without a compass or you are going to get hopelessly lost. So you've got to decide which are the anchor points that you find interesting. It might be a character. It might be a place. It might be an incident. It might be combinations of those things. And they're the driving engine of your story. And then any research that hangs off the back of that uh, is, you know, putting the lifeblood back into the story. Uh, so... Yeah, God, it's it's a very difficult one, and I I beg people not to become overly fascinated with their research because their readers won't appreciate it. Yes, they, that's so true. Yeah, mm. they they want so, a story. Tell us about the 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 story then, in terms of the um, if you could just give us some uh, timelines, so we have an idea of when you thought of the idea, how long it took for your first draft, if it was in stops and starts or whether you did it all in one go, and then um, then the editing process and so on, you know, basically till from conception until release. Yes, this is for the latest novel, I assume you mean. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, all right. Oh, it seems so long ago now. Uh-huh. Um, um uh, well, look, in fact, I, th uh, I had already done some research towards this novel in that I had conceived a much larger project that involved uh, the 1930s King's Cross. So that actually bought me a little bit of time. I pitched it to Alan Unwin, oh, let me think, 2020, 2019, 
Yeah, my last book came out 2018, so I pitched very shortly after that. Mm-hmm. And they said yes, they liked the concept. So I was slightly ahead on research, which was great. Um, to be honest with you, I was off and running. You know, I really uh, solidly hammered away at a first draft for the next year and a half, I would say. Uh, I knew I had a delivery date of, mm. I think it was October 2019, November 2019, something like that. Maybe a bit earlier, actually, August because we were editing, going through the whole uh, structural edit and the copy edit uh, at the back end of 2019. So I did have a deadline, which was great. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, in a way, it keeps you honest, you know, um, mm-hmm. even with something like a crime thriller. There's always moments of panic where you think, I'm not sure if I'm going to make this. And I made some- <laughs> Well, yeah, you really wonder, you know, because this is your first shot. This is, you know, every book writes itself a little bit differently, and mm. this is my debut into crime. Mm. Um, and interestingly enough, I would advise you stay nice and loose around that. Don't get too tied down. Mm. Uh, that's an easy thing to say when there's pressure, but uh, be willing to make changes. Listen to your editors. Listen to yourself. Any doubts you may have. The famous saying is, if you have doubts about a piece of text, then it's going to get picked up by somebody. Mm. So don't kid yourself. Mm. Um, I made some changes really around even the story in final, in quite final drafts and even in editing stage because I got some very good advice from my both my structural editor and my copy editor, wow. both of whom are geniuses mm. and uh, merciless in a good way. Um, so – yeah, you know, I, and and the book has has been improved for that. I see that very very clearly. Mm. Uh, you know, being prepared to to really be very uh, flexible as late as possible. Right, uh, and and also with crime, it has to be watertight. You know, because it has to make sense and all of that. So, did you know? what was going to happen in all of your plot points or the the key ones before you started or did you just write to to see what happened and you know a bit of both a bit of both Mm. a little bit of both i know that's probably not an awfully useful answer but (laughs) i certainly had an idea i had a suspect i I, someone i thought was going to commit the crime and uh, that actually changed interestingly enough i don't think that gives anything away so Mm. i kind of kept the solution from myself which was great, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. It would be a little dull just to sort of, you know, tr- trudge towards an inevitable conclusion. Yeah, knowing, but aren't you scared that you won't be able to, you know, let it I'm, resolve? <laughs> I'm very good at um, – I'm going to boast a little now, uh, yeah. and I'll probably get caught up by readers now. So mm-hmm. far, readers have said it's a very clever who done it, and they didn't guess. But mm-hmm. um, I'm good at complexity, so I'm – you know, I will – understand if I tease this or change that or put a red herring in here, how it's going to affect things further down the track. And I will jump around inside the book and double check that, you know, how I've affected things. Um, And so, yes, you know, red herrings were put here at one stage, then I had to shift them all over somewhere else. Mm. Um, Sometimes, you know, (laughs) I have to be honest, uh, my books have a lovely complexity to them that I even have to reread them to remember all the <laughs> twists and turns. <laughs> but life so, is like that. 
Well, yes, so true. But um, so, you, uh, you know, you're a successful novelist now, but can you give us just a really quick potted history of your career in its entirety, just so people can see the the key steps or key yes, aspects yes. of your career, as diverse as it might be, to get you where you are today? Sure, sure. Yes, I don't know how. Every writer you talk to has their weird list of jobs they've had to <laughs> get them to uh, their writing career. Um, I, I, my undergraduate uh, studies were in history, interesting enough, and um, theatre studies. My first love was uh, theatre. Um, fortunately, I cured myself of the desire to be an actor. <laughs> Because uh, that would have been a tragic mistake. Uh, although I love performing, and I still love getting up and giving talks in public and what have you. Um, so that was my formal education, if you like. But while I was at university, um, I uh, collaborated. Well, I know actually, I got commissioned to write a play out of the blue because there was a little theatre company that their playwright disappeared on them, and I, I wrote a play which was a musical, and I met this guy Danny Katz. And he and I wrote this thing very quickly together. And then we started to write comedy cabarets and uh, perform them in the mid-80s, which sounds a long time ago now. Uh, and they were great fun. And uh, then I wisely dropped out because I can't sing either. But uh, <laughs> we hired, you know, semi-professional people who could actually sing. Uh, and so they did, uh, you know, fringe festivals and what have you. So that was fun. And then he and I embarked on the somewhat uh, – a ridiculous ambition of writing the great Australian musical, for which we did get funding, mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, that took up a few years. Um, and then um, I'm just trying to remember. Oh yes, look, uh, the, the animation thing came along. Uh, no, no, sorry, documentary first. Mm -hmm. um, I had had a job, which was actually very important in my early twenties with a small publishing company. And we were working on a very big project called Australians at War, mm. which was a 16-volume history of uh, military history of Australia. And I was the staff writer and the photo editor. And so we had to churn one out. I, I don't not churn, produce a very high-quality book every three months, for which I did a fair bit of caption writing. And so that was uh, that. Uh, that conquered the fear of the blank page. Mm. Uh, you just had to produce good copy. Um, and then actually out of that, I got approached by my wife at that stage had been working with Jane Campion and her editor had a husband who was a, a TV director and he approached me and said, do you know about this particular topic, which was the post-war occupation of Japan by Australian troops? I said, I know nothing. So we ended up making two really fabulous documentaries for ABC television. Uh, again, it sounds a long way from historical fiction, but it, you know, you have to shape a story, you take mm. people's um, real testimony of their lives, and again, it just, you know, it sank in little by little that, you know, people had these amazing stories to share. So we did that, and then um, I went off and uh, raised a family and did PR and all sorts of good things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but you know, always, always had something on the go, so I did try to write a I um I worked in the New South Wales Cabinet Office for a while as a public servant, writing advice for the Premier of New South Wales, would you believe? So I tried to write a novel out of that experience. Um, mm. And again, it was all right. It was progress, but it wasn't 
I'm not sure if it was published. You mean like a political setting kind of novel? Uh, well, more, more actually, a, a more a sort of about a, a person lost in their career. Ah, okay. So it wasn't a political thriller particularly. I was a lowly public servant trying to find my way in the vast hierarchy of the public service. So it seemed like a golden experience, you know, to to waste. Uh, you know, I knew about how certain upper echelons of the public service worked, but I couldn't really shape it into a story. Uh, I had a shot. Mm. Uh, so then uh, somewhere in all that madness, I uh, decided to write kids' books, and I was working with animators, and I loved the even though they're all wonderfully mad animators, they are great. They can be great collaborators. And, of course, the great reward as a writer is you see your characters form on the page in front of you. You know, you're like, wow. So we wrote, oh, literally, you know, tens of TV series Bibles. We had meetings with Nickelodeon, you know. If you think getting a book published is hard, you should try to get a TV series up. Oh, yes. Yes. But it was all learning curve. It was all a learning curve. And then, as I say, uh, yes, in uh, the early 2000s, um, I, I had been presenting manuscripts to my agent, uh, children's manuscripts. And then she wisely said, have you thought about writing for adults? And that brings us up to today mm. with the three books that I've written over the last six years. So tell us about when you are in the depths of your writing, when you're writing your first draft, that is, what is – do you have a writing routine? Do you have any rituals or do you have uh, a goal for, you know, that you need to achieve in a certain period? Tell us about that on a practical level. Yes. I wish I could tell you there were these sacred rituals that I follow. <laughs> and I have a dread of word lengths and I don't – you know, people reporting on word lengths and all that. Because it doesn't, you know, we're not slicing Devon here, you know. We're, um, yeah, obviously I'll have good days and I'll have not so good days. And um, I don't beat myself up about the bad days. Uh, in fact, they're the days where the brain's resting and probably doing a lot of good work, I'd say. Sure. Um, I have a very messy desk yeah. <laughs> uh, with just dozens of books piled up that I'll go, oh, got to grab that, grab that, grab that. Yes. So it's. Someone, quite a well-known writer, who's unfortunately I can't remember their name. It was, oh God, someone very well-known said, writing can be at its best like a collage. You know, you really are gathering the material in the moment. And so you'll never write the same novel twice, even if it's the same story. You know, the daily experience of something you'll read in the paper or some something you'll watch on television or, you know, just this article you found. So you have to be open to that. So that's why I don't sort of have too many rituals. I mean, I tend to probably write better from about mid-morning on, um, to be honest. I have my desk actually out on my dining room table, which you'd think is a high traffic oh. area for the family. Yeah. But I like that. I like the fact that I'm not in this far too quiet space which would be sort of a bit creepy. You know, I, I like the fact that there's life going on around me. So you uh, have to pack up every night? No, no. We tend to eat in front of the telly or we okay. – uh, or I shove everything to the end of the – it's a long dining room table. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so that's where the magic happens. That's where the magic happens, yeah. And I don't want to question it too closely. I don't want to look at it too closely. I don't want to take it apart too much. 
It does seem to work for me. Um, I think everyone will have an individual path for things that they need to do. I will say that, you know, writing a novel and fitting it into the modern lifestyle is a difficult thing unless you're, mm. you achieve the goal of early retirement or something. Mm. So you need to be, I think, prepared to really create on the run. There's a wonderful mm. documentary about Bob Dylan, who I would not be comparing myself to in any way, but him writing songs in a while on the road and everybody's running around him setting up, you know, and he's just there. Mm. He's not in some quiet place. He's just because the bubble's right around him, you know. So do and you I, write while you're on the road or, or only at your dining room table? Uh, I might make the odd note if because I, I have to travel to town uh, on a train. So I might, uh, you know, when I'm researching, I'll take notes. Um, but even there, I, I will often read a book and just see what stays. You know, I don't slavishly copy down all the notes. I'll just see what catches out of a, you know, a, a memoir or an academic book. What was the, what were the four or five things that were inspirational in terms of fiction? So, um, yeah, it is a kind of. Uh, it sounds all very sort of chaotic, doesn't it? And uh, serendipitous. No. Do do you do you stop at a particular hour? Do you kind of like shut down for the day, or or do you do your mind keeps going and you'll just keep writing into the wee hours? Uh, I'm too old to do that now. <laughs> um, I used to, I, you know, we, I do. I'm a civilized person. I stop for dinner and the latest box set of Mrs. Maisel or whatever it is. Oh yes. Uh, <laughs> Because <laughs> that's great, isn't it? Just great. It's so good. Um, so you know, I I would become an utter bore if all I did all day was work on my book. I probably someone's going to jump up and say, but he is. But um, uh, no, I, I you know I need some time to myself, time to fill up again. Uh, if there's some, there's a very good rule, and it's one I do kind of follow a little bit, mm. and that is to leave yourself something simple to do for the following day, uh, whether it's. Well, it might just be an administrative thing. It might be I've got to send an email to so-and-so oh. or I've got to finish that paragraph. You kind of know how it's going to finish, but you deliberately don't finish it because when you get up in the morning, there's that sitting there and it's a nice, easy way to start writing the following day. I, but uh, don't you think, you like, if I did that, I'd be so paranoid that I'd forget what was going to come next that I well, would it, have to finish it? If you forgot it that easily, it probably wasn't worth remembering. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, it no, sounds really ruthless, doesn't it? But, um, <laughs> you know, good ideas will survive the night, I should mm. think. And, in fact, they, you know, a really good idea will be worked on in sleep. Uh, yes, I'm lucky. True. I've been lucky to live in the mountains in that I, you know, I can walk uh, to my village. I can go on little bushwalks. Uh, and that is a huge replenishment of the soul. Walter would understand that, I'm sure, uh, Walter Mason, uh, that you do have to top up your soul. Uh, you can't just grind gears. If you're grinding gears as a writer, you really need to stop. Uh, you really need to stop because you're not going to produce good work and you're going to end up hating the process. You know, that, what's the point of that? It's always got to be pleasurable. What was the most challenging thing about this novel? the process of this novel? Ah, that's a very good question. I think it was having the confidence to write a crime thriller because it is territory oh. well explored by other writers. Mm. So I had to just be sort of a little bit bloody-minded and go, no, I can do this. This will be fine. I'll be all right. Uh, I did do. I did read a fair bit of crime as background. 
uh, and you know was relieved to find it's not all police procedural or you know grisly true crime or anything like that. There's some lovely elegant literary and you know crime has so many very interesting aspects to it. Uh, in terms of process, um, yes, it was probably um, I, you know I was on a fairly tight timeline. I have to be honest. So yeah. um, you know I knew I was working hard and fast. And uh, you have to kind of forgive yourself that, in a way. You can't beat yourself up about, you know, oh, it could be. The book is the book. You know, you always it could always be better, I suppose. Although I have to say, I'm, I'm quite pleased with this the way it's turned out. Um, I, I've achieved most of what I would uh, set out to achieve, mm. particularly the characters, because some crime, the you know, the characters get lost. We don't really care about them. Mm. Um, Speaking about the characters, what were the what challenges were there, if any, of where your protagonist is a woman? Ah, is this the uh, as a ma- male writer? Yes, writing, <laughs> oh, I knew that question would come up. Yeah, it always of course does. it was. <laughs> well, I do, to be honest, have some very good people to watch my back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you know, part of me uh, doesn't believe that men and women the overlap is is so vastly different in that we all are all ambitious. We all Mm. probably seek love and security and those things. But I do recognize women's experiences particularly. Oh, God, has been revealed in the last few years, as if we Mm. didn't already know, is extremely different. And I think I try to explore some of that, actually, about the way women are treated with uh, everything from violence to contempt. and, you know, that hurts as a, a man, but you just accept that's the system that needs to be fixed. Um, you know, I have a son, and that is challenging. But, yes, how do I write a female character? I've always delighted when I get a fan who tells me they're going to read more of her work. Uh, that's always <laughs> tickles my fancy. I'm like, gosh, apparently because that's emotional. I'm like, oh, okay, what does that say about men? Uh, but anyway um, – so I've got my wife, who's actually a novelist. Uh, she reads a very good uh, early draft, and she'll pull me up on things that she thinks are just uh, unconvincing or not adequate. Uh, all my, what's that? Very handy. Very handy, yes, very handy. And I have been of some use to her as well uh, from the other <laughs> the other uh, perspective. Um, my uh, editors, uh, both women, you know, and I trust them implicitly. And I think they would say, in fact, uh, you know, they have said there's some aspects of this that I think you've got very uh, spot on, you know, in terms of how women would think, observe the politics of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't pretend uh, I can occupy the body and soul of a woman. I'm not silly, but I, I think as a writer, you can take your imagination to places. And, um, yeah, look, I just hope I've done an adequate job in that regard. Oh, yes. Uh, Um, And finally, what uh, would be your top three tips to aspiring writers who hope to be in a position like you are one day with, you know, these successful (coughs) novels under your belt? Oh, God. You're very, very lovely. Um, Don't finish something. Literally finish something. You know, even if it's not the great work you hoped, just finish something. You'll never find out your voice and your technique and your style if you betray yourself by bailing, you know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, sure, you know, if you, you're producing a dud, you probably need to uh, bail out. But, there, you know, we live in a golden age of mentors and writing programs and what have you. I was a little early for some of that, so I've done it largely by myself, but with help from my wife, we've been a bit of a team. Uh, but, you know, that, I meet so many writers who tell me they're still working on a book or they're going to do it one day, or, and I just say, well, you know, I'm not telling you how to live your life, but just do it, you know, like what's the worst that can happen? You end up hating it and you stick it back in the bottom drawer or – you show it to a publisher and they'll reject you. You will get lots of rejection. I mean, you just have to take that on the chin. Um, but always write for the sake of writing. Write to your truth. Yeah. Write to your um, – the, <laughs> the only other thing I'd say, I'm going to sound so like an old fart. <laughs> read, read, read good writers. Oh, um, right. Learn your craft. You know, don't – you know, don't turn in uh, – text that is badly punctuated or poorly structured um agents are saying they're seeing a bit too much of this and um you know there is a bare minimum you've got to reach to be recognized as a professional writer and be professional i think we're beyond three tips now but um, (laughs) be very professional in your dealings you know you can't afford to have hissy fits or 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 be um or you know uh, dramatic (laughs) <laughs> dramatic, yeah, melodramatic. You know, uh, it's a business, and uh, they do appreciate. You know, they understand writers are fragile creatures, to a certain extent. But ultimately, it, if you, if they're publishing you, it's the greatest privilege you you can imagine. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you 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 deliver on time. Uh, listen, listen to your advice. When you get back those copy edits and those structural edits, you know, your first temptation is just to cry and go, "What have I done wrong?" Um, because they can be quite extensive, um, but you know they're lovely. That's it's it's, uh, it's both slap and tickle. They don't just sort of slam you. Um, and I've been lucky in that they've never said this book isn't going to go. Um, but take you know take that advice very very seriously. Um, you may you know you don't. Finally, they say of course the book is yours. It's your responsibility. What's out there is yours. Got your name on it. Um, but, you know, especially for younger writers, you know, uh, I mean, sort of early career writers, you know, these people in publishing have been doing it for a while. Um, you know, there are, of course, you know, young literary genius writers who can break all the rules. I, I recognize <laughs> that. Um, mm. I'm but I more, think you need to know the rules first in order to break them properly. I think so. Yes, 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 I think so. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm discovering – the um, modernist writers like Wolf at the moment and uh, even our own Christina Stead and a few writers mm-hmm. like that. And, uh, you know, very young, they were breaking rules gloriously, you know. Yes. You wonder if they'd get published now. Um, and that's glorious, you know, that's fabulous. I hope we always have writers like that who, uh, you know, are willing to experiment and push the forms and all that. Um, I do not want to see... Uh, cookie cutter uh, commercial fiction uh, take over the entire industry mm. that would be uh, disastrous so there we go there's about great advice there. yeah I, I love it so. all right and on that note congratulations on death in the ladies goddess club and thank you so much for your time today Julian my big pleasure 
This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our eight-week course, Novel Writing Essentials, focuses on getting your manuscript off to the best possible start. Whether you've already started your opening chapters or just have a story ID, this course will help you shape the beginning of your novel through weekly lessons and workshopping in a supportive online environment. In doing so, you'll avoid potential mistakes down the track and meet the course goal of getting your first 20,000 words of your novel in the bag. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning online with your very own tutor and classmates providing direct feedback on your writing. You can find out more at writerscentercomau slash novel essentials. That's writercentercomau slash novel essentials. There you go, Julian Leatherdale. So, Al, what are you doing in the coming week? Are you going to be do- writing more things, writing oh, more brand new stories? Probably rewriting that scene with three other characters in it because clearly that's the theme of the week. I don't know. I'm not sure. Like I've, I've got to, I actually do have to do the things I have to do. So there's probably going to be a bit of that going on. And um, right. Yeah, what I, things you have know, to do? What do you mean? Just all that admin stuff that I was talking oh, about. Right. You know, all those okay. other things yeah, that yeah, have yeah. to be done. Those things, the actual mm-hmm. things that need to be done. Um, so I'll be doing that, and yeah, I don't. I'm hope, well, hopefully, I'll be finishing the draft of this this book that I'm res- clearly wrestling with. Like, let's face it, there's there's wrestling going on in that draft. I'm just calling in different people at different times. It's like, you know, when you used to watch World Series Wrestling and they, like, tap in off the sidelines? It's that. I've got people in the <laughs> ring and then I'm throwing them out and tapping others in. It's crazy. <laughs> crazy, okay. I tell you. Anyway, okay. uh, what about crazy. you? What are you doing? Uh, what am I doing? Um, speaking of wrestling, I mm. I have to go find my I, – I came home yesterday with one boxing glove and I don't know where the other is. It's somewhere in several suburbs away, between here and the next suburb. So I have to go well, find it. Well, you probably it left or... it at the gym or something, did you? Well, I was in a park or somewhere, so oh, it's probably there. Valerie, you know, anyway. if you were if you were my 13-year-old who does this kind of stuff <laughs> on a regular basis, <laughs> I would make you walk back and find it. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> oh, he leaves stuff everywhere. It drives me crazy. Do you know I did that once with my Apple Watch and in and it's this park with very long grass. So I but you can use the find my watch function on your phone and mm. I finally tracked it because it could have been anywhere between here and wherever. So mm. I, I finally tracked it to this park and then I thought how am I going to find it here? There's long grass like everywhere. But then as you get nearer you can um, make it beep. Oh no. Yeah. You, so Are you serious? This, yeah, it's in this long grass and you can make it beep. And so there were some young teenage boys um, shooting hoops nearby. I said, can you help me find my watch? <laughs> so we were all listening for this beep and eventually we found it. So Technology. use that function on your phone. Isn't, yes. it, isn't it a great thing? Mm-hmm. Mm. All right, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, you'll find all of the show notes and links to the things that we've spoken about at SoYouWantToBeAWriter.com.au. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.